We're going to do this with uh, written questions. That way I can kind of collect them and I can read them so that the mic will pick them up because there's a bunch of people that wanted this uh, on the podcast. So uh, right now, some deacons are walking around with note cards. If you have a question, raise your hand. They'll give you a note card and you can write it down and then they'll collect it. You can also write your question down on a bulletin or anywhere else. Anything you want to write on, you can write the questions down. While you guys are doing that, let me... uh, Ethan, can we switch back to my presentation? While you guys are doing that, I want to say something for a moment about uh, John Piper. Uh, A lot of you guys may have been a little little concerned when I called Piper out. You're thinking... Okay, why are, you doing, why are you calling Piper out in a sermon like this, in public like this? An incredible man, he's written great books, he's ministered to many of us in deep ways. Here's the reason that I called out Piper to you guys. I am concerned that all of us can become guilty of following a human being rather than following the Word of God. I meet a lot of guys, especially young guys, who will quote Piper or they'll quote some of the big podcasting preachers like Matt Chandler, guys like that. Let's rattle them off. Well, here's what Matt said. Here's what Piper said. Okay, we need to remember that, that all men are uh, prone to error. All men and women make mistakes. Uh, John Piper makes mistakes. I make mistakes. Brian Fisher makes mistakes. Matt Chandler makes mistakes. Mark Driscoll makes mistakes. All human beings make mistakes. So don't become a follower of a person. Become a follower of the Word of God. The only thing you have for which you know, or in which you know there are no mistakes is the Word of God. That's the only thing you can count on 100%. So I'm challenging John Piper because I want to challenge you guys. Don't just buy into something because John says it. Take it against the Word of God. Evaluate it against God's word. Is John right? Well, I believe in most things John is right. Don't just do that for John. Do that for me. I I don't want to hear that any of you are followers of Blake Jennings. That's not okay. You you should not be following me in that sense. You should take what I say and evaluate it against the word of God. You may walk out of here convinced that Piper's right and I'm wrong. Guess what? You could be right. (laughs) John Piper and I will get to heaven one day and we'll find out. One of us will be wrong. Maybe both of us are wrong. (laughs) Okay, I'm okay with that. I'm giving you my best understanding. I want you to take my understanding and take it against the standard of Scripture. You have to be convinced in your own mind. What is your view of this passage? What does Scripture teach? Don't just buy into what Piper says. Don't just buy into what I say. So really be careful about that. That, The the beauty of modern media is that we can podcast all these preachers. We can listen to the great things they're saying. Incredibly good, dynamic speakers like these guys. Just be careful that you don't just follow what they say hook, line, and sinker. They could be right could be wrong. Always take what people say and evaluate it against scriptures. That's why I called John out. I really want to specifically challenge you guys. John is one of the most godly men I know. I don't even know him, but know of. Incredibly godly man. If he can be wrong, any of us can be wrong. Okay, so that's why I singled him out. Well, you guys continue to write your questions. I'll start with what I promised, uh, a discussion of James 2, 18 through 19. Like I said, I think these two verses are probably the hardest verses in your Bible to understand. I've put them up here on the screen, and you'll notice there's no quotation marks. That's actually accurate in the Greek. If we were actually studying the original Greek, not only would there be no quotation marks, there would be absolutely no punctuation. They didn't even put spaces between words. It's just a run-on of capital letters. Okay, so there's no punctuation in Greek. You have to figure out the punctuation from the context, and that's most important when you get to quotations. So if you, if you check your theology at the door... 
and you just look at this passage and you just say, what is the most natural breakdown in this passage for where, from where it goes from James to the objector and then back to James? What would you conclude? Well, everyone concludes that James must be speaking at the beginning, but someone may well say, and then it has to switch the objector. There's really no way around that. That's just how words work. That's how grammar works. But someone may well say, boom, objector speaking. But when is the objector done? Okay, check your theology at the door. If you're just looking at this passage, when is the objector done? It's got to be the word but. Okay, it begins with but someone may, may well say. It's got to end with but are you willing to recognize you foolish fellow? It's an objector. James is going to object to this guy. So we would expect as soon as James begins to speak again, he's going to rebuke this guy. That's the most natural way to take it. James is going to create this hypothetical objector, and then he's going to end the quotation by objecting. Okay, so I think that's the most natural way to take it if you leave your theology at the door. Am I sure of it? No. I'm not sure of it. I think it's right. Could totally be wrong. This is one of those I'm like, I guess I'm maybe 60% sure. (laughs) of this take on the text. So I think most of 18, all of 19 are the objector. Well, if that's the case, then what's going on here? Well, um, again, whatever the objector is doing, he's an objector, so he must be objecting to James. So the first thing to do is figure out, well, what is James' point? Well, James' point right before and after, verse 17 and verse 20, is that faith and works work together to save you from a worthless life. You must have both faith and works to save you from a useless life, so you need both. James point, you need both faith and works. What is the objector going to say? The opposite. He has to say the opposite. Whatever he's saying, it's got to be the opposite because he's an objector. So he's going to say faith and works are actually unrelated. So I'm fine with faith alone. He's going to disagree with James. James, I don't need both. I think in the objector, we have a guy who doesn't want to do good works. He'd really rather just do sin. So James comes along and he says, hey, folks, you have to follow faith with good works if you want to be useful to people, if you want to be honoring to God. The objector's going to come in and he's going to say, hey, works has nothing to do with it. Who cares about works? I'm fine with faith alone. My faith is mature. It is everything it needs to be, even without works. Okay, so that's what the objector must be saying. So with that in mind, how do I take these verses? Well, I'm going to give you my paraphrase. I'm going to assume a lot of hands are going to go up because you don't understand it. Yeah, I barely understand it too. So I'm just going to confess that to you guys really, really hard. I think in verse 18, if you just read it as it is, it's not a proof. It's not an argument. It's just a command. The verbs are command verbs, imperatives here. I think what the objector is saying is, James, let's say for the sake of argument that you have faith alone while I have taken your advice and followed my faith with works. Now, why don't you show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Now, everybody looks at that and they say, well, buddy, that's impossible. You can't show faith without works. Well, but that's not the point here. The objector is just making a simple command. They're simple imperatives. The objector is just saying, James, you show to the world. Remember, that's the idea here. Justification in the sight of the world. You show your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. Let me prove it's possible. That's verse 19. Verse 19 is the objector's proof. James, you have correct orthodox faith in God. That's the idea. You believe that God is one. That's the Old Testament Shema. Okay, you, you have correct orthodox faith in God, plus you do good works. That's the idea of you do well. Uh, if you look at chapter 2, verse 8, you'll see the same phrase. It's about obedience. So you have correct orthodox faith, and you do good works. Guess what, James? The demons have the same orthodox faith you do, and yet rather than do good deeds, they tremble in fear of God. What does that prove? Well, the objector is saying, you have true faith, plus you have works. The demons have true faith. They don't have works. Therefore, faith and works are unrelated, so I'm fine with faith alone. Now, you look at that and you say, 
That's absurd. They're demons. That's the whole point. It's a foolish argument. Okay, the, the whole point of verse 19 is this objector is making an argument that is technically true, but is stupid. It is technically true. James has true faith and works. The demons have correct faith and no works. And so it, it follows in the objector's mind. My faith can be true and good and complete with or without works, but it's a stupid argument. The Bible is clear. There is no salvation offered to demons. Demons have no hope of redemption. They're not like us. They're not like human beings. It's a stupid argument. That's the whole point of verse 20. Are you willing to recognize, you foolish, you stupid fellow, that faith without works is useless? I think James is putting foolish words in the mouth of an objector because that's what you did in the ancient world. That's a common rhetorical device in ancient literature. You create a hypothetical objector who is really just just a straw man. You're going to knock him down. You're going to take his feet out from under him because you're going to present him as an idiot. That's what James does. He presents an objector who is an idiot. The objector makes a point that is technically true but is stupid. And then James knocks it down. You foolish fellow. Are you not willing to recognize faith without works is useless? It doesn't do anybody any good. Okay, that's my understanding of this passage. I could totally be wrong. What I do know absolutely with 100% confidence is do not base your view of this passage on verse 19 because no one knows who's speaking there. Okay, the NIV, if you look at the different versions, you'll see the quotes in all kinds of different places. No one knows who's speaking. I, I think it's most reasonable to assume it's the objector speaking. There are people who will base their view on this and they'll see James speaking. And James is saying uh, that, that, let me read it to you. They're basically, in the view of the, a lot of folks, especially who are Reformed, they view James as speaking and basically saying, the demons also believe in shudder. In other words, this is James' proof that if you have faith without works, it's demonic faith. I'll read, I read that all the time in the commentaries. What's the problem? It's a stupid argument. Demons have no hope of salvation. There's no point. James would be an idiot to look at demons as proof of his argument. God does not offer salvation to demons. There is no, even if demons had perfect faith and tons of good works, they couldn't be saved. Why? Because Christ didn't die for them. Christ died only for humanity, for human beings. There is no redemption offered to demons. So I I just want to be really clear about it. I, I don't know for sure what's going on in 18 and 19. I've given you my best guess. Whatever you do, don't base your view on the last part of chapter, of verse 19, because it's a stupid argument. That's why I don't think it's reasonable to think that James speaks those words. It would be a really dumb argument and everybody would know, wait a minute, buddy, salvation isn't offered to demons. It's a silly argument. That's how I take that passage. Now, um, I'd like to take questions and so, oh, I've got some. I'm sure if you have questions that you want to follow up based on what I say, just raise your hand, the demon, the demons. <laughs> <laughs> Demons will bring you, no, the deacons will bring you uh, some, some blank note cards. Nothing like humor to lighten the mood. Okay. Kind of group these together for a minute. Okay. <laughs> Just have to write clearly. And you guys are asking some great questions. Uh, I knew someone would ask that. Has John Piper had anyone point this out? I don't know. I'd, I'd love to hear from John. Um, our, our, the view that I'm articulating, you guys, I'll be honest, it's not the majority view. It's not even a especially popular view. You'll see it in a few places, but not often. Um, I, 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 let, let, me, let me talk for a moment. I don't know if anybody's going to ask this question, but I think it's, it's worth asking. Um, 
the, the hardest thing for me about my view is that I'm disagreeing with Luther and Calvin and guys like John Piper. And I'm, I'm disagreeing with the majority of the church. Now, in a lot of ways, I, I disagree with the, the, the Roman Catholic version of doctrine. But here I'm disagreeing with the majority of Protestants. How do I get away with that? <laughs> How do I sleep at night when I'm doing that? Well, um, just a little bit of history for you guys. Uh, John Piper, uh, Matt Chandler, these guys are really going back to Luther and Calvin. They're basing their views on Luther and Calvin. I look at Luther and Calvin and I see two men who are absolutely amazing men. They grew up in, in a world that knew nothing but Roman Catholic doctrine. In a world that believed that you could not go to heaven unless you did faith plus works. Your works cooperated with your faith to earn justification. And these men lit a torch and they cried out to the world that justification is by faith alone. I see these men swinging the pendulum so far back to the true doctrine of the apostles, correcting the mistakes that have been made during the Middle Ages. I see them doing that. And then I think, wait, is it, is it reasonable to assume that these men are going to get the pendulum all the way back? Is it reasonable to assume that Luther and Calvin, in the course of their short lifetimes, are going to correct all that was wrong during the Middle Ages? I don't think so. I think one of the problems that we have today is we have a lot of men who keep going back to Luther and Calvin and to the, the creeds of the Reformed Church hundreds of years ago and, and thinking, well, that's it. No one's smarter than Calvin. No one's better than Luther, so let's base our doctrine on them. I think, man, you've got incredible guys, but it's unrealistic to assume that they could correct everything in the course of their short lifespans. We need to continue to correct what was wrong through human tradition. We need to continue to go back to the text, back to the passages that are at issue and study them in their original context. That's why I feel okay disagreeing with Luther and Calvin and Piper. I think they made it a long way there, not all the way. I think they continued to get works confused. If you actually look at the history of the debate, what happened, Luther cries out, salvation, justification is by faith alone. And the Roman Catholic Church responds, that's too easy. People are going to go sin. What are you going to do with that? And Luther, what does he do? Well, that's a good point. What do we do to keep people from sinning? Well, you know, I I don't really know what's going on in James 2 and in some of these other passages, but it appears to me that, that if you have faith, works must follow or you either lose your salvation or you prove you never had it. Well, I, I, think, I think he got clouded there. I think he made a mistake there. So that's why I'm doing that. I don't know if anybody's going to ask that question, but just in case, it's okay to disagree with Luther and Calvin and John Piper. That's where I get that. Again, I could be wrong. Who knows? Find out when I get up there. What does Augustine say about that? Before? Augustine says both. Augustine says both. Augustine is a earliest and greatest church theologian from the early church period, 380 A.D., um, Augustine, or Augustine, however you want to pronounce it, is an amazing figure. He writes incredible uh, cl- uh, things about theology. Problem for, uh, for Augustine is that he writes things that can uh, lend support to Roman Catholicism, to Arminianism, to Calvinism, and to us. Why? Because in 380 AD, they were not asking the questions we ask. It was a different day. They were dealing with different issues. Augustine was dealing with much more fundamental issues, the biggest of which was something called Pelagianism. There was a a false teaching in the church that mankind's really not that bad. We're, We're really pretty groovy. We just need a little bit of help. So Jesus's death on the cross just helps us so that we can earn our way to God. Well, man, that's way off. So Augustine writes to answer that question. He talks about the depravity of mankind about how we don't need a little bit of help. We're absolutely desperate. Our only hope is salvation through faith and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So um, Augustine is used to support every view that's out there. Okay, let, let me, I, I see you guys uh, raising your hands. Um, 
we'll, we'll, we'll see how that, if you, can, if you can write it on a card, that's helpful. If not, we'll do an open Q&A here in a minute. It's helpful when you write it because then I can read the question back because a lot of folks are going to pick this up on the podcast who weren't able to be here today. Um, let's see where we go next. Well, you guys are asking a lot of good questions. Oh, yeah, I knew this one would be asked. Okay, Matthew 7. If we are eternally assured of heaven once we accept Christ through faith, how can that be reconciled with what Jesus tells us? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Matthew seven twenty one. That's the next place to go. That's perfect. Okay, so Paul is saying that, that we are eternally assured of heaven once we accept Christ through faith. How can that be reconciled with Jesus in Matthew seven twenty one? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only one who does the will of my Father. Okay, the answer to that is context, context, context. What is Jesus doing in this passage? This is a famous passage. It's called what? Matthew 7, Sermon on the Mount. What's Jesus doing? Well, Jesus is showing to a group of Jews who believed what? What did the Jews in Jesus' audience believe about themselves? They believed that they were saved. Why? They believed that they were right with God, that they were saved because they had the right genetics, they were Jews, and they had the right obedience to the law. And the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not speaking to believers. He's talking to people who think they're right with God through works. Faith doesn't play any part in it. And so what does Jesus do in the Sermon on the Mount? You know it. Jesus shows mankind how incredibly lost they are. He talks to a group who thinks that they were righteous through their works. And he says, okay, if you want to earn this thing, if you want to be righteous through your efforts, through your works, how righteous do you have to be? Well, that's Jesus's famous statement. We looked at it last week, Matthew 5, 48. Your righteousness must be as righteous as God. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Your righteousness must exceed the scribes and the Pharisees, the most righteous men of the day. You have to be as perfect as God is perfect. That's why I say to you, if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. If you even hate your brother in your heart, you've committed murder. Jesus is telling them the standard, if you want to earn your way into my kingdom, is perfection. And so he ends it, Matthew seven twenty one, by saying, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do things in your name? Did we not cast out evil spirits? Did we not do lots of good works? Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice wickedness. What's the point? Jesus is saying, if you come to me and you point to your good works, I'm gonna say to you, I never knew you because you are still wicked. You are still in your sins. The Sermon on the Mount isn't about the gospel as Paul preaches it. It's about what comes before the gospel. I I like to tell people the Sermon on the Mount is a really useful document, particularly for unbelievers, because it demonstrates to unbelievers how desperately they need Jesus Christ. It shows to the, to the whole world outside of the church, everyone who thinks they're earning their salvation, whether they be Muslim or Hindu or just a good American, The Sermon on the Mount tells them the standard that God holds you to is absolute perfection. If you show up to the judgment room of God and you say, Lord, Lord, look at all that I did. He will say to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice wickedness. Because you didn't make it. It's interesting. The Sermon on the Mount is followed a couple of chapters later. Matthew chapter 11, at the end of it, Jesus finally, I think, offers the solution to the problem of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, if if people were really listening to the Sermon on the Mount, they should have been falling on their knees, weeping. They should have been desperate. They should have been coming to Jesus and saying, God, save me, help me. So at the end of chapter 11, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. 
The idea being, okay, if you listen to my Sermon on the Mount, you should be heavy laden. You should be weary because my teaching from the law should have crushed you. The answer is come to me. That's, that's the gospel. Don't try to do it on your own. Come to me. Unfortunately, what happens in Matthew 12? The nation begins to publicly reject their Messiah. Right after Jesus offers himself and says, come to me, they look at Jesus's miracles and conclude it's Satan working through you, not God. And and Matthew takes a turn. Chapter 12 is like a pivot. It heads downhill and moves Jesus towards the cross. So I think that's what's going on. The Sermon on the Mount is true. You have to be perfect if you want to earn your justification. It's not about the gospel. It's about before the gospel. It's to prepare people for the gospel. That's my understanding of that passage. So very good question. It was asked. Okay, let's see. Uh, Speaking of the judgment seat uh, referenced in James and how our works play into that, how would you describe the punishment reward system in heaven? More honor, a better place in heaven. What do you do with that? Well, I was actually talking um, right before the Q&A. The Bible doesn't declare a whole lot to us about this whole reward thing in heaven. Paul doesn't have a lot to say to us about it. James doesn't. John doesn't. No one says a ton about it. We do get some clues uh, in, in 2 Timothy. Uh, I'll actually read this one to you. I think it's, it's pretty groovy, pretty good passage. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Many of you are familiar with that passage. Uh, let's see. I, uh, it's also a difficult passage, but I think makes a lot of sense of this situation. Verses 11 through 13, uh, this is, uh, Paul says, it is a trustworthy statement. He's quoting something that was often said in the early church. If we died with him, if we died with Jesus, we will also live with him. Okay, he's talking here about our eternal life. If we died with Christ through faith, we will live with him in the future. If we endure in this life, which in Timothy means endure in good works and in faithfulness, we will also reign with him. We'll rule with Jesus Christ in the future. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Now, that, that's part of a parallel there. It has to fit together. So if we endure, we will reign. If we don't endure in our faith, if we deny Christ through our actions, he will deny us what? Heaven? No, the opportunity to reign with him. And then the conclusion, verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Even if we choose poorly and we deny Christ in our words and in our actions, we won't get to rule with him, but he will still be faithful to us. Verse 13 is about our eternal security. Our our, our guaranteed entrance into heaven is based on the faithfulness of God, not on our faithfulness to him. So Paul is telling us what's going on in heaven. Well, we'll stand before Jesus, not because of our works, but because we died with Christ through faith. Paul's gonna say a lot more about that in the book of Galatians when we get there. We were included in the death of Christ on the cross. That's what guarantees us heaven. So we stand before Jesus Christ. We've already escaped hell. We're in heaven. Jesus evaluates our lives. If we're found to be faithful stewards, faithful servants who, who honored him, who proclaimed him to the world through both our words and our deeds, then he will reward us with the opportunity to rule with him. I don't know a ton about that. I just know that it seems like Jesus Christ is gonna rule over the world in the future. And it seems like if we are faithful in this life, we'll get to share in that. We'll be his vice regents over the world. I don't, does that mean I'm ruling the state of Carolina? I don't know. I don't know how it's gonna work. I just know I get to share in the inheritance of Jesus Christ if I'm faithful. His inheritance over the world. I get to rule with him. There's multiple passages that talk about that. If we do good deeds, we get to rule with Christ. If we don't, we're denied that opportunity. So that's one sense of this, the reward of ruling with Jesus Christ in the future. Um, Other places, it's described as crowns. I, I think that's a related concept. What is a crown? It's a symbol of honor and authority. So we receive that crown, that honor, that authority through good works. 
If we do not do good works, what do we lose? Well, we lose the right to rule with Christ. We lose that honor, that reward. I think it's a hard passage. Matthew 25 is a famous passage. It talks about Jesus' evaluation of these stewards. I think all the stewards in that passage are believers. Two of them are faithful as stewards, faithful as servants of Christ. The third is not. He doesn't use his life on this planet well. So what does Jesus do? Well, he rewards the first two faithful stewards with more opportunities in heaven to serve him. What does he do to the third steward? He dishonors him. He rebukes him. He causes um, what the text actually says, weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see that phrase, that's not hell. It could be. It's just an ancient way in, in ancient Near Eastern society to describe regret. I think Jesus is saying, if you're not faithful to me as my steward on earth, you're going to regret it. You're going to be in outer darkness in heaven. That doesn't mean hell. That's not a technical term. It's a symbol of regret in the ancient world. You're going to be denied the opportunity to to be in the light with me at the banquet table, enjoying the the feast of my inheritance, the opportunity to rule the world. You're going to regret it. I I think that's what's going on there. I think that's the idea. So um, it's interesting. Um, Our view, the, the view that I'm articulating to you guys is often called free grace. Um, by us, it's often called by those who disagree with us, easy believism. Uh, the idea being, if you accept the gospel, you're secured, so why bother obeying? They, they say that we're telling people, don't bother obeying because it doesn't play into your salvation. Well, that couldn't be further from the truth. We're telling people you're saved by faith alone, your works play no part in it, but if you don't obey, you're stupid. If you don't obey, you are an idiot because you're going to pay for it in this life and in the life to come. Works are incredibly important, not to keep you saved, not to earn your salvation, but to provide reward and honor when you stand before Jesus Christ. I I believe that's going to be a terrifying judgment. I I think I've said this before. Often we think of, I'm going to see Jesus in the future, and it's going to be this warm and fuzzy moment. Like, he's just going to be stirring classical music around. It's going to be so fun and so wonderful. Man, that's not what I see in the Bible. Every time Jesus shows up, what do people do? They fall on their face in terror. He is the infinite almighty creator. He is infinitely holy. I think you're going to see Jesus in heaven and the first thing you're going to do is you're going to fall on your face. I think I'm going to fall on my face and I'm going to be afraid because all of a sudden I'm going to realize how inexcusable my sin was. No matter how good I live from this day on, I'm going to still struggle with sin. I think I'm going to feel every one of those sins when I stand before Jesus. He's not making me feel those. That's just the unavoidable consequence. I'm standing in the presence of Almighty God. Suddenly I realize he was always there. He was living inside of me and look what I did with that. I think we're going to stand before Jesus and it's going to be terrifying. And then if we're faithful, Jesus is going to reach down. He's going to touch us on the shoulder. He's going to raise us up and say, look at the good things you did. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. I want that. (laughs) I want in the midst of my terror for Jesus to come over and raise me up and honor me before himself and before all of heaven based on my faithfulness to him in this life. That's what I want. That motivates me to forsake sin. I think we believers need to live in terror. Every time you give into sin, you are trading what you could have when you stand before Jesus Christ in the presence of all of heaven for momentary pleasure now. So, So we're not talking about easy believism. We're not giving people an excuse to sin. Please don't think that. Salvation, getting into heaven, that is by faith alone, based on the work of Christ alone. But what I experience in heaven and what I experience on earth is based on my works. I must do good works. I'm an idiot if I don't. I hope that makes some sense. Uh, So that's that's what we know of the judgment coming in heaven. Uh, There's a lot that we don't know about that. Uh, I have a question. Was verse 18 based on believers and 19? 
uh, and 19 on others or non-believers? Could the objector uh, have been a non-believer? Um, to, to be, could the objector have been a non-believer? When you ask that question, to be honest, uh, you're, you're kind of missing the point of the argument. Remember, James isn't talking about getting to heaven. The, the objector's not a person. Do, do you get that? The, the objector is not a person standing next to James speaking. The objector is hypothetical. That's how you do rhetoric. You, you, you put the word, you put an argument that you want to break up in the, in the mind and the words and the mouth of a person who doesn't exist. He's a hypothetical objector. Someone may well say, not Tim said this. <laughs> it's someone may well say. So was he a believer or an unbeliever? That's not the point. James doesn't care. He, he's not a real person. James' point is there could be a person who would say this argument. Faith and works are unrelated. Let me prove it to you. Okay, that, that's that. So is an unbeliever or a believer? It doesn't matter. What, what we have to look at is what is his point? What is he trying to do? He's trying to demolish the argument of James. He does a poor job. So James busts him up afterwards. That's, that's kind of the idea there. So um, uh, oftentimes what, what we do, um, this is a good time to mention this, uh, we, we, go, we, we, we fall into error when we're studying a passage because we read our issues into the passage. Okay, do you see James 2 has caused 2,000 years of controversy in the church. So what do we do when we open James 2? We foist into James 2 2,000 years of controversy. We foist into it thousands of commentaries written to try to resolve James 2. Well, guess what? James wasn't writing to answer our questions. He, he was writing for a very simple reason. Encourage believers to do good works. So you've got to be very careful about foisting our issues into the text. It, What's the guy a believer or unbeliever? James doesn't care. It's not, it's not relevant to the issue. Point is, the guy is saying works are, are pointless. There's no reason to do good works. Your faith is mature without it. And so he's going to make that point, and then James is going to bust him up for it. So that's the idea. You've got you to always be careful about that. Same, any hard passages, a lot of the, a lot of the uh, teachings of Jesus, the book of Hebrews, a lot of people foist our issues into the book of Hebrews. Don't do that. Leave, leave your theological issues at the door and just read the book. What is the book about? Always start with the book as a whole. Try to get back into the minds and issues of the original audience. Okay, uh, here's a question. Um, are my views consistent with the Reformed or Calvinist taking because I talk about how our works prove our, our faith to mankind? This is a good one to answer. Um, well, not really, because when you look at what Calvinists mean by our works prove our faith or justify us, um, Piper's actually really clear in some other passages that are longer. What they're talking about is in the sight of God when we stand before him. Calvinists disagree with us when it comes to the judgment seat of Christ. They don't see two separate judgments. We look at scripture and we see a great white throne judgment where all unbelievers stand before God the Father and he evaluates their works and to see whether or not they merited heaven and all of them fall short and are condemned to hell. Uh, we view the judgment seat of Christ as a different thing. It's not before God the Father. It's before Jesus. It, it's not in, this, in the universe. The great white throne judgment exists in this universe. It's in heaven. We're already in heaven. We individually stand before Jesus. We're evaluated not for entrance into heaven, but for reward or loss. Uh, Calvinists, really, I should just, all three views, <laughs> Roman Catholics, Calvinists, Arminians, they collapse those two. Okay, so, so there's one judgment. All human beings, believers and unbelievers, everyone will stand before God for judgment and one day in the future. What will get us to heaven? Well, if you read Roman Catholics, it's faith plus works. We had to have faith and we had to have works. If you read Arminians, what is it? Well, it's faith that you only got to hold on to through good works. So, so you got to have both faith and works. 
What is if you read Calvinists? Well, if you read John Piper, he says explicitly on that final day of judgment, God will evaluate us based on our works as proof of our justification. In other words, they're saying that at the end of the day, all of us are evaluated whether we get into heaven or hell based on our works. For Calvinists, our works flow unavoidably out of our salvation through faith. It's, it's helpful to have that idea in mind. For Calvinists, they're not saying you have to try to work. They're gonna say God works in you. If you believe in God, he will fill you with his spirit and his spirit can't help but change you and make you do good work. So, so works come unavoidably. So God will evaluate you based on those works. Were they there or not? Okay, so I'm saying something completely different. Um, I, I'm saying that James' argument in, in James chapter two is not about justification when we stand before the judgment seat of God, whether we get into heaven or hell. I'm saying it's about justification day to day in the in the eyes of the world does the world know that i am righteous does the world say you are a friend of god what's well, based on my works they can't see my faith unless i'm doing good works i'm not justified in the sight of my neighbors around me so it, it is different i'm not saying the same thing as reforming in, in calvinistic uh, or reformed ideas or interpretations of this passage i hope that makes some sense um, to you guys and if you want to know more about Piper's stance on that, you can ask me afterwards. I'll have to look up where exactly his quotes are on, on that idea of, of, well, you saw it actually on the screen. Final salvation is a term that Piper uses. You are saved, but it's, it's a salvation that's not complete until that final day of salvation where God evaluates and demonstrates your faith through your works and that proves that you were saved and gets you to heaven. How can the objector be 19? That is contradicting statement from 18. Um, Let's, let's see. I knew you guys would have questions about the objector. I'll try. It's tough stuff. Okay, is, is the objector contradicting verse 18, uh, verse, in 19, verse 18? Well, I, I don't think so. I think 18 and 19 are two distinct things. I think that verse 18 is a command, a simple command. He's not proving anything. He's really not saying much of anything. James, let's say for the sake of argument that you have faith alone, while I have taken your advice and followed my faith with works. Now, James, why don't you show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. He's simply saying, James, go do it and I'll do it too. Now, let me prove that it's possible. I think he proves it in verse 19. It's a stupid proof, but it is proof. James, let's, let's, uh, let's kind of shuffle the board again. Let's clear the slate. Let me prove to you with a second analogy. James, you have correct orthodox faith in God, plus you do good works. Okay, so he, he's kind of starting the argument over. James, let's, let's look at you as you truly are. You have orthodox faith, plus you have good works. Well, guess what? The demons show us throughout scripture, we hear that demons have correct orthodox faith and they have no good works. Both you and the demons were able to demonstrate mature, real, orthodox, full faith in God with or without works. Therefore, I don't need works. That, that's his point, I think. That may not be convincing to you guys. I still struggle with it. My current view of verses 18 and 19 was actually developed Wednesday morning. <laughs> In my office after the elder meeting, Brian and I got together. We've been wrestling with this passage. I've been writing you know, commentaries and stuff on this passage for oh, eight years, nine years now. We got together and we've always wrestled with it and struggled with it. And it, and it occurred to us, maybe verse 18 is, is not the proof. Maybe verse 19 is the proof and verse 18 is just a simple command. And and, and I think that's a better view. Um, but again, I, I welcome you guys to disagree with me. You're welcome to continue to ask me questions about it. I can't say much more <laughs> than what I've said about it. I really don't know if I'm right. I, I think that makes sense to me, but I could be wrong. You're welcome to disagree with that. How are we doing on time? Go for just a little bit longer. <laughs> Somebody wants to walk through First John. Whew. 
Yes, First John is a tough one. Maybe we'll do that. That's a fun one. Um, if for centuries the quotation marks were written in a certain way, why are you allowed to change them? That's a great question. Um, it hasn't been for centuries. Actually, there were no quotation marks until modern translation, so last couple hundred years, and no one's put them in the same place. Uh, for those of you who have an NAS Bible, you'll see that the quotation marks go to the end of verse 18. For those of you who have an NIV or an ESV Bible, you'll see that they only go through the middle of verse 18. No one's ever been able to agree where the quotation marks are. Um, I, I would argue to you guys that I, I think it's disingenuous of the translations to put the quotation marks in there at all. I, I think they're making it as if you'll read it and the first thing you think is, well, here's the argument of the objector. Well, that's not true. You don't know. You have to decide from context. It'd be better just to leave them out and tell people, a little comment down there, you got to figure out <laughs> from context what the objector is saying. Because that's, that's the case. We don't know. Does the fourth interpretation of James presented today have a tradition behind it? I don't know. I really don't know. Um, it might. Um, the four interpretations I presented today don't have a, a tradition or a history that goes much past the Reformation. Um, I don't know if you guys are aware of this. Uh, our theology is developed, is, is clarified in the midst of controversy. If you look at the history of the church, um, Here's an example. No one was wondering about the whole Trinity thing until what happened? Heresy. People began to teach that, God, that Jesus was not God, that Jesus was not equal to God the Father, and it woke the church up and they said, oh, well, we, we better clarify what we mean. Let's invent a word, Trinity. Okay, so they clarified their doctrine out of controversy. Well, the issues we're looking at today weren't controversies until the Reformation. Okay, so it's, it's not till the Reformation that people begin to try to figure out, well, if, if you reformers, Luther, Calvin, if, if you guys are saying that salvation is by faith alone, then I, a Roman Catholic, are going to take you to James too. That's the first time that you really start to see this issue boil up. And, and like I said, I think that, that Luther and, and Calvin were more right than the Roman Catholic take on it, but I don't think they brought it all the way. So, um, you know, our view's been around for a couple hundred years. It's a minority view. You'll see it here and there. Um, I, I think that in general, it doesn't have more of a history than that because Luther and Calvin are pretty great guys. So people just took them at their, well, we're followers of Luther and Calvin. So I don't think it was till later that people really questioned it. So let's see. That's a good question. Uh, are there any other uses of the word justified in scripture other than what James and Paul does with it? I bet there are. Um, I'm, you have to come up here. I'll have to do a search on my computer afterwards, whoever wrote that. That's a good question. Here's a question. Um, Abraham and his sacrifice of his son Isaac, in the text he did it in front of God alone, so isn't this justification in the sight of God? Um, well, he, he didn't do it in front of God alone. He actually did it in the front of God and Isaac. I, Isaac's there. There's a human being there. Um, in addition the, to that, there were men who accompanied them who heard the story. Um, the, the justification of Genesis 22 is the history that developed. The whole world now knows what Abraham did. In Genesis 22, it was on, on Mount Moriah when it was done. It was in the sight of God and Isaac that Abraham is demonstrated to be righteous. What's really significant is the person before whom it mattered most was actually Isaac. There's a really interesting passage, Genesis 18. God actually reveals to Abraham. He tells us, it's really cool, it's God speaking. He tells us why he chose to give this wonderfully gracious covenant to Abraham. All these wonderful things to Abraham. He says, I'm giving this covenant to Abraham so that Abraham can teach his children righteousness. 
so that Abraham can become a model of righteousness to his children. So up on Mount Moriah, who is Abraham proven to be a model of righteousness to? Isaac. Now, I don't know what Isaac was thinking. (laughs) What in the world's going on? He's tied up. There's a knife in front of him. What's going on? Regardless of what Isaac is thinking, Abraham was demonstrated at that moment to be a man who so loved God and so obeyed God that he was willing to kill his own son in obedience to God. So the justification of Genesis 22, it ends up being in front of the whole world. We all know about it, but the audience who it's primarily in front of in in 22, I think, is Isaac. God is fulfilling the reason for which he gave Abraham the covenant. He is demonstrating to Abraham's descendants how faithful, how obedient Abraham had become. So I I think that's what's going on there. Let's do one that's a very practical one. How should we approach our our Catholic friends? Um, I, I think it's helpful to remember we've talked about Roman Catholicism today. We haven't talked about Roman Catholics today. There are lots of Roman Catholics who are genuine believers. Roman Catholicism is not some other religion. I think that Roman Catholicism has the truth within it, like a seed, like a kernel. They've just surrounded it with a lot of human traditions that have made it hard to to fully understand. They've they've kind of clouded it in the official doctrine of the church. That's our opinion. Obviously, we're Protestants, so we're going to say that. Um, that, That's our opinion. But at the end of the day, within the the, the seed and within Roman Catholicism, it is true, is accurate. And so you're going to have a lot of Roman Catholics who are genuine believers, who are going to heaven. They understand that they are made right with God through faith alone in the work that Jesus did. I I, I had a great friend um, in college when I was here at A&M uh, knew him for years, loved the guy, uh, incredibly great guy. After He's Roman Catholic. After college, he went off to become a monk up in, in New York. Um, I pinned my friend down one day. We had just a very, very long conversation. We're talking about the differences between our faiths. And I said, at the end of the day, Stephen, how is, if God was to ask, if you're standing before God and he was to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And Stephen says, because Jesus died for me. Stephen's going to be in heaven. That's it. That's the gospel. Now, you start talking about the authority of the Pope and, and the place of tradition and certain passages, and Stephen and I are going to disagree. But at the end of the day, he got the gospel. Okay, so how do we help our Roman Catholic friends? Well, first, you, you got to go to the gospel. Am I talking to a Roman Catholic who's gotten it, who, who understands the gospel? Well, then we're going to go to other issues. Or am I talking to a Roman Catholic who hasn't gotten it? You'll talk to a lot of Roman Catholics, and you'll say, um, how sure are you that you're going to heaven when, you'll, when you die? And they say, man, I'm not sure at all. Then you ask him, how do you, when you stand before God and he asks you, why should I let you in my heaven? What will you say? And they say, well, I went to church. I was baptized as a, as a little baby. I, I took the Eucharist. I, I did penance and confession and all these things. If they answer that way, well, they've missed it. That's, that's not the gospel. They're relying on their work. So we're going to take them to faith. Well, l- let me challenge you. Read the book of Romans is what I would say. It's actually the book of Romans that brought Luther out of Roman Catholicism and into what we now call the Protestant faith. He read Romans and he realized especially from Romans 1 through 3, okay, if I got to do this thing by my works, by all these ordinances of the Catholic Church, I'm in big trouble because my works are not anywhere close to the standard of God. I am dead. I am desperate. Romans brought Luther to his knees and he realized if my works are part of this equation, I'm in trouble. And so Luther finally grasped Paul's argument in Romans chapter 4, end of 3 and beginning of chapter 4, I'm saved by faith alone, not in my works, but in Christ's work. Okay, Luther grasped it, he got it. Um, I think for a while, Luther tried to stay within Roman Catholicism, just correct it, but there was lots of controversy and it kind of blew up and, and they split. So uh, when you're talking to someone who's Roman Catholic, don't assume that they buy all of Roman Catholicism. They might, they might not. Go to the gospel, take them there. 
Um, if, if they're not clear on the gospel, take them to the book of Romans, particularly what we looked at, end of chapter 3, chapter 4. It couldn't be more clear, I think. If they will read Romans and if they will be um, really honest to Romans and studying Romans, I think it will lead them to the gospel. I know there's some genuine believers in the Roman Catholic Church that they agree with us about the meaning of Romans, but they don't feel like they should leave the Roman Catholic Church for one reason or another. Maybe it's family connections. Maybe it's tradition. Maybe it's just they they agree with other aspects of Roman Catholicism. Don't worry about that. Sometimes we paint the Roman Catholic Church as this enemy. It's, it's, I don't like portraying them as an enemy. They, they have the seed of the truth within them. They've just gotten it mixed up. They, it's not clear. So we want to help bring clarity to it. Maybe some genuine believers are called to stay in there. I don't know. I'm not going to answer that question for them. Okay, so take them to the gospel. That's the issue that matters most. All right, you guys, it's, uh, just so you know, it's 1145. Feel free to leave at any time. Uh, I, I'll, I'll talk to you for a moment about First John, because um, that's a, an easy book. <laughs> First John is another one that's really tough. Whew. I think my friend Matt Morton, he, he taught on 1 John in the college class a couple years ago. I think he did an awesome, awesome job. Um, the issue is, let's see. Okay, uh, let, me, let me illustrate the issue that we have. Uh, chapter 3 of 1 John. John says, No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. There's a challenge with this translation. It's the insertion of the word practice. It's not, it's not there. Literally, it reads, no one who is born of God sins because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now, when Arminians and when Calvinists look at this passage, they, they have to, to take it as practices sin. They don't do sin on a repeated basis because they're interpreting this verse to mean if you, if you practice sin, you are not saved. You are not born of God. If you're born of God, you will practice righteousness rather than sin. That's how they interpret the idea of 1 John. But I, that, I don't think that's honest to the text. John's, John speaks in, in absolutes. That's how John likes to speak in his letters. He's saying as clearly as he can, the one who's born of God does not sin, period. Does not sin at all. If you sin, you're not acting like you are born of God. I think what John's doing, the, I, I love what Matt Morton did with this. I, I think he's using the same argument we use in the Aggie Code of Honor. An Aggie does not lie, cheat, or steal, or tolerate those who do. Guess what? There's Aggies who lie. There's Aggies who cheat. There's Aggies who steal. And all of us who were Aggies tolerated those who did. So is the Aggie code of honor a lie? No, it's, it's a principle. The, the nature of being an Aggie, if you are an Aggie, the way you should live, it's, it's really, it's meant to be a command to us. If you're an Aggie, the way you should live is you should not lie, you should not cheat, you should not steal, nor tolerate those who do. John's making the same point. If you are born of God, the way you should live is never sin. John's, I think when you study, you'll see John's writing to an audience that struggled with some of the same things that James' audience did. Um, they're believers who think sin's really not that big a deal. I'm saved, I'm right with God. This is uh, flowing out of a lot of the philosophies of, that were around during the ancient world. I'm, I'm saved, my spirit's right with God, who cares what my body does? So John writes to them and says, you gotta realize the basic nature of being born of God, of being a believer, is that you do not sin. If you sin, you are living contrary to your identity as a believer. That's John's point. I think he makes that point actually clear in, in chapter one. I think he helps us there. Verse five, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. The absolutes. God is absolute light. There's no darkness in him. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. John is, is presenting here a, a very, very clear absolute about how the life of a believer works. He's saying, do you not realize um, fellowship with God demands absolute obedience. God is perfectly righteous. He, he will only have fellowship with those who are walking in righteousness. If you sin, if you're practicing sin, and yet you, you say that you're walking with God, that you're honored by God, that you're, that you're walking in the love of God, you're lying. You, you can't sin and be near God. John's talking not here about relationship, whether you're a son of God, but, but fellowship. Are you close to God? Well, not if you're sinning. No one who's sinning can be close to God. But John provides a remedy. If you are sinning, what do you need to do? Believe the gospel? No. Confess your sins. Agree with God. My sin is wrong. I'm sorry for my sin. When you do that, God removes your sin and welcomes you back into fellowship with him. That's the idea of 1 John. John knows we struggle with sin. He wants to remind us that sin is completely contrary to our new identity as believers in Christ, as born again. If you sin, you are being unfaithful to who you are. That, John's basically saying the same thing James is. There's no excuse for sin in your life. Not even a little bit, not even a tiny bit of sin can you leave in your life. You can't manage sin, you can't live with sin because it separates you from God. Not in terms of eternal life, but in terms of fellowship. You can't be close to God. You can't enjoy God's presence unless you're walking in obedience. I, I think that's the point of First John in the book. We don't have more time to walk through all of First John, but I think that's the basic idea that he's saying. He's talking to a group of people who thought, eh, sin's not that big a deal, and he wants them to understand, no. person who's born again does not sin. That is inconsistent with who you are when you give in to sin. There's lots more questions. I'm getting really tired, though, so <laughs> I think we'll go ahead and call it there. I know there were other questions. You guys are welcome to come talk to me, um, and I really appreciate you guys staying around. This was fun. So uh, if you have other questions, feel free to come ask me, or you can email me later this week. You can come in. We'll talk in my office if you just want to talk through this stuff. Thank you guys for hanging in there.